Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of the Alternate History Show. Glad that you can join us today. As always, we have a fascinating discussion today on European diplomacy in the run-up to World War One and before. How could things have differed had the French won the Franco-Prussian War of the early 1870s? What about the idea of a German-Russian alliance in the 1880s? during the reigns of Alexander II and Alexander III. How about the idea of a Russian victory during the Russo-Japanese War? And we look at the idea of World War I being prevented after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. I'll be doing all of this with two very special guests who I'll introduce you to in just a mo. Also, imagine a world with no pilgrims and no American idea. That is what Carlos Archero has done. He's an author of a new book called To Climates Unknown, with a point of departure in 1581. And he talks to us about the book and encourages you to get it as a Christmas present, either for yourselves or someone who absolutely loves alternate history. All of that in this two-part episode of The Alternate History Show. For the next hour, do stay tuned. It's history with a twist. You're listening to The Alternate History Show with Ben Kearns. Welcome to this edition of The Alternate History Show, where we're talking about European affairs in the latter part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century. Uh, with a particular focus on diplomacy. And here to do that, I've got two people for the price of one, actually. Uh, Daniel Benson and Sean Patrick Hazlitt. Good afternoon, guys. Good uh, good morning, good evening. <laughs> good, good, good evening, good afternoon, and I guess good morning to myself. Yeah, we were talking about this a, a little while ago. We're straddling different time <laughs> zones at the moment. I'd like to know, with all my guests, how they got started in alternate history. So, Sean, let's start with you. How did you get started? started i started by publishing a anthology at bain called weird world war three which posited what would it have been like if the united states had gotten into a conventional war with the soviet union and it wasn't entirely straight alternate history it also had a supernatural or science fictional twist and all those things there had to be like a weird fictional element in the stories but that was my broader start at at the same time growing up i was very interested in kind of alternate histories with turtle dove and then i also enjoyed reading kind of conventional military thrillers back then that now would be alternative history but you know like red storm rising by tom clancy red army by ralph peters team yankee by harold coyle you know really enjoyed that kind of stuff and dan what about you how did you get started i also read some military techno thrillers which have now become alternate history i never thought of it that way but that's true i read turtle dove a little bit but i think that when i think about alternate history the first thing that comes up in my mind is the alternate history forum which i think is just alternate there are some 
very long scenarios there that I followed for a long time, like Green Antarctica. I think Den Valdron is the author of that. That sort of thing was very interesting. I tried to write some of my own short scenarios and then short stories set in those scenarios. And one of those stories got picked up by the Tales from Alternate Earths anthologies from Inklings Press. They've published three of my stories now. Maybe at some point we can get you both on to talk about your books and your novels and stuff like that as well. Well, let's start by talking about what we're meant to be talking about extensively today, Mm -hmm. which is European diplomacy and uh, Europe in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. I want to focus first on the early 1870s. Seems a a good place to start. And let's talk about the Franco-Prussian War. How do you think France could have won that particular conflict and what would have happened had they done so? Sean, what do you reckon would have happened? If I put myself in the perspective of the French, and how could I have quickly either avoided the conflict altogether or have won, I would have assassinated Otto, Otto von Bismarck. Absolutely. That would have been my first move. I wondered how long it would be before his name would enlighten, of course. You can't talk about European diplomacy at this time without talking about von Bismarck. Okay, so why would you say that particularly? He was the main driver in terms of organizing the German military on the Prussian model, making the alliances and garnering the resources that would have been necessary for Mm. the Germans to beat the French. You couldn't do it immediately before the war, but I would do it before he had time to really prep the German military and organize it under that Prussian model as early as possible so that it would have never been you know, a possibility of conflict in the first place. And how would a French victory have looked for Europe, for the world, really? And uh, what would have happened? If Napoleon III had won, then we would still have a French empire through the second half of the 19th century. I don't know whether that would actually have made any difference because the geopolitical situation would have still been the same. Focusing on you, Sean, what do you reckon would have happened and how do you think this could have played out? If the French garnered more influence in Europe and had more of a check on the Germans, I think World War II would have gone an entirely different way. Or sorry, not World War II, World War One. I. I think Germany would have been a much weaker power. And I think the British would have seen more of a threat from the French than from the Germans. So I think it's more likely that you would have seen a Germanic Britannia or something, like where they have some sort of alliance there. Yeah. Moreover, I know that I think Napoleon III had some going-ons in Mexico. Yes. So I think yes. you would have seen the United States also be in somewhat of a conflict mm. with the French in the Western Hemisphere under the Monroe Doctrine. So they probably likely would have allied with the British and the Germans. Now, with the Germans or allied with the Austro-Hungarian Empire? Probably, just for the natural reasons of ethnicity and things like that. Yeah. The question is, what would have happened with the Russians? I imagine the Russians would probably be natural allies with the French. Mm. So you have an entirely different setup for World War One, And by the way, who would start it? Would it be the Germans this time, or would it be the French? Because you take Otto von Bismarck out of the picture, right? Are they going to yeah. be as aggressive and expansionist 
or is it going to be the French that are that continue under that Napoleonic tradition? So it's almost as if that Napoleonic tradition remains unbroken mm. through that you know, those two centuries since Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo. I suppose it also hinges on whether the dual alliance comes into fruition on cue at any point as well. Of course, you had the great game going on between Russia and uh, the British Empire at the time as well. Exactly. So, yeah, so that actually plays into the thesis perfectly mm. because that's another potential flashpoint that could play into all this. And I think you do have a World War One. It's just a very different World War One, where the French have some sort of dispute over maybe iron and, and you know things like that in the Alsace-Lorraine region, right? And maybe there's a flashpoint over the Royal River Valley, yeah. and the French go in and take it, and the you know, British are outraged. So the British have a kind of a naval conflict with the French and send troops to port at Kiel and those troops go and help help augment the German military. At the same time, the United States probably invades Mexico, which is a completely different scenario from what we saw in World War One. If you assassinate Bismarck, of course, who ends up taking on, if anyone, that sort of diplomatic Bismarck-esque role, I suppose, within Europe? It could be nobody. If I were writing this story, I would look through the history to find a really interesting French person and make the story about that person, and, and that's the person who the mantle of Bismarck falls on. But Bismarck was trying to do something that France didn't need to do. He was trying to unify the German-speaking people yeah. and give them coastline. If our resident military genius in Europe is French, then that person isn't going to want the same things that Bismarck wanted. If they were loyal to the emperor, they would want to consolidate the empire yeah. and make sure that it doesn't fall to another Republican uprising. This history that we're talking about, where the, the French empire continues, is a history that doesn't have any democracies in Europe. I think people would think about whether democracy is a good idea, and they'd say, well, it, it hasn't worked. Maybe the U.S. is a strange outlier. It's only a matter of time until they become an empire as well. So all of the nascent Republican governments forming in Europe fall apart out of hopelessness. I agree 100% it would have to be some sort of French figure. But to his point about the ethnic focus of, say, Otto von Bismarck and focus on getting access to the sea, he's very right when he says that this person's motivations would be slightly different. So if I were to put myself, let's say we just choose some sort of totem for this person, you know, okay. some vessel, and I become that person, what would I do? The way that I would deal with, say, a Germany coming out, you know, kind of you know, the 1860s, 1870s, is I just remember, like, if we're going back to the 1860s, that's, you know, we're in the middle of the American Civil War, which ends, I think, in 1865. Yeah. Napoleon III was doing whatever he was doing in Mexico at the time. So I would have to imagine that if I had this figure, the first thing I would do is to try to keep that war going on as long as possible. The French very likely would 
support the Confederate South. So I guess the French would kind of hands off on that and just try to consolidate power in Mexico. But if I put myself in the position of this figure in Europe, given that the French are traditionally a Catholic country, I would try to separate the Germans based on that. So particularly, I'd focus on Bavaria and try to make that some sort of a a French colony outlier, just establish a presence there to weaken the Germans long before they could become a real power. And at the same time, in addition to kind of having that pan-Catholic sort of arrangement, which, which would actually make Italy a natural ally as well, I would also use that as kind of the nominal way to organize. Again, in Ireland, I have an ally based on the same factors. And then I would use that as kind of the cover, but at the at the end of the day, I would be garnering resources and trying to industrialize faster than the Germans and the British so I could build more ships, I could build more weapons, etc., etc. Colonialization. If you didn't have a central German state, the other great powers would chop up that territory among themselves. And I think that they would, as happened in the Balkans, they would absolutely use ethnicity and religion as an excuse and say, well, we have an enclave of Catholics here. That is now French aligned. And we have some Sorbians over there. They're Russian aligned. We have Poland, right? I didn't even think of that, which it doesn't exist at the time. It's possible that they emerge out of this as a sort of minor great power like Italy. I think that the UK would probably also try to establish a sphere of influence along the North Sea. And France would push as far eastward as it could. And Russia or its puppets would try to push as far westward. And then I think the question would be, who ends up being overbalanced? Who ends up being too powerful? Because whoever that is, the other great powers will combine forces to stop. Let's move ahead a little. Skip forward to the 1882 Treble Alliance, really. Italy, Austria-Hungary and Germany. I mean, how could that have been prevented from forming? And what would be the implications thereof? So it makes sense from the perspective of those three countries, why they allied with each other. It's because Mm -hmm. they were lesser great powers. France, Russia, and the UK would combine forces to crush any one of them if they tried to expand. Italy had a little bit of colonial possibilities because it had the Mediterranean, but Germany and Austro-Hungary didn't have any ports. I guess Germany had the North Sea. I know that Germany was trying very hard to build a rail line from Berlin to Constantinople. And if they had done that, they would have been in a much stronger position. It would be hard to get that thing built in the 1880s. I can't think of any way out of it because the geography of Europe is just like that. Mm. And so anyone who's at the center of Europe is going to want to conquer some coastal territory. Conversely, is it possible to get a sort of more joined together alliance Mm. between the three of them as well? Because one of the reasons why Italy declared war on the central powers was because they said it was a defensive treaty only is there any Mm -hmm. way that there could be less 
wiggle room backstabbing as a result yeah <laughs> i live in bulgaria so there's a saying on the balkans what do you call three allies two allies and one backstabber <laughs> <laughs> if i were writing this scenario i would have maybe garibaldi be old college friends with bismarck or i would shuffle people around until they were very good friends with each other okay and then they would say, oh, good old Bismarck, he's my chum. I would never betray him and just have this based on the force of the personality of whoever is doing it. I agree with that. I think the way to strengthen it is, is maybe even Bismarck having supported Giuseppe Garibaldi's red shirts in some way mm. to help cement that relationship. And then also just procedurally on the treaty, make sure that it's just not defensive. Right. So that good relationship with whoever this Garibaldi's friend could be, make sure that the language of the treaty is more positive. I'd look also at Northern Italy, the part of Italy that speaks German. I don't know how friendly they were to Garibaldi. Like, were they sort of reluctant to join him or not? I don't know. If they were, then I would make them not reluctant. I do wonder as well whether that would have any further implications for Europe generally, more generally, as a result of that. So I would think that if uh, the three countries are very good friends with each other, they form a very strong bloc, that will make an incentive for one of the other three, France or Russia or the UK, to become their ally Mm. against the other two. Then it's a matter of asking who's willing to break ranks. who of, who of those three is willing to join the central powers? How else can we resolve that? Can we get other allies to join this particular block with a sort of point of departure in the early 80s? Can we get any other, any other Balkan well, countries, for example, to back them up, so to speak? The first thing that came to my mind was Turkey. If Turkey goes through a democratic revolution earlier and deposes the Sultan, then there's a strong, slightly crazy new state that might be willing to do anything. And so they might say, yeah, let's join forces with Italy. Eventually they did join the Central Powers, Mm. so it was in their interest to do it. I guess as well, if if Turkey backs up Italy and backs up the alliance, then Greece would be forming its own alliance with perhaps Russia and the UK, France, or anyone else that's going, basically. Anybody else. Pretty much. Yeah, and also the the Balkans, like Serbia and and, countries like that, might not be super enthused that the Turks are you know, align with the central powers. And then again, Serbia has a very natural relationship with the Russians. There's not a lot that would push the Balkans into the central power direction, central powers direction, because A, that historical relationship, and B, you know, the Turks have a pretty brutish history in the Balkans that would you know, it was probably a long ancestral memory there that does not incline them to join the Turks. You'd think so. But in general, yes. I think that if some, you know, the new Turkish Republic joins with Italy and Austro-Hungary and Germany, then Russia has already been doing a lot of empire building in the Balkans from the Russo-Turkish War onward. Mm. And even mm-hmm. before, that's the whole point of the Russo-Turkish War. They really wanted a Slavic puppet state on the Balkans. So they would absolutely join with Russia and France and the UK, and with Greece too. But in real history, Bulgaria joined the Germans in World War I. Of course. It doesn't yeah. really make any sense, but that's what they did. <laughs> <laughs> if I had been there, I would have told them not to. But. There's a lot about World War I that doesn't make much sense, but... Uh, <laughs> 
There you go. I wonder what would have happened, how we could have seen an alliance between Russia and Germany. I mean, we sort of got one under Bismarck and Alexander the Third, I think it was. Could that have been more concrete at some point? And how could that have happened? And what would be the implications? Bismarck is sacked by Wilhelm II. Mm. Russia loses its connection. They doubt Wilhelm's... They doubt that they can trust him, Mm. so they form an alliance with France instead. Yes. So all we have to do is give Bismarck and Wilhelm a better relationship, or maybe Friedrich stays alive for three or four years longer. Uh, The problem is Friedrich had a notoriously bad relationship with Bismarck. So in that case, it's Wilhelm I who needs to stay alive a little bit longer. (laughs) Yeah. What are the consequences of such an alliance? Is it just as simple as keeping Wilhelm alive? If you still have kind of the the Germans and the Russians are still in a good spot, that's rather menacing for the rest of Europe, right? The first thing I I would think the the British and the, the French would try to do is a very concerted diplomatic effort Mm. in Russia to try to sway them against the Germans. And if that did not succeed, I think you would see even more paranoia Mm. and even more of a buildup of arms and armies and things like that. I mean, it would be foolhardy to get into a war with both Germany and Russia at the same time. But I think that the Germans and the French would certainly build up a lot faster to protect themselves. The question is, is what happens if the Germans and the Russians get even cozier? Again, there's back to the Polish question. Is that a powder keg? Is there like an independent, like, is there a movement there to create some sort of drama around that area? And could that be a casus belli for the French and the British to try to at least preempt an even stronger Russia-German alliance? Or will the the Russians and Germans just slowly build up and just try to bide their time so that if there was a dispute, they'd be much more powerful? I don't know. I can definitely see Russia and the UK funding Polish nationalist movements. And then, you know, perhaps some visiting German-speaking Archduke gets assassinated by Polish nationalists. Mm. sparks a world war. I guess you'd start out with like partisans and things like that with like the Brits an early version of the SAS kind of behind Polish lines kind of thwarting both the Russians and Germans and then of course you'd have your conventional sort of battles on kind of the same places that they happened during the actual World War One, right. in the Western Front. And by the way the Germans would have you know, a ton more forces to bear and maybe even better generals, because I think von Hindenburg, he was initially on the Eastern Front, I think. Yes. Right? So you have all those forces that you could deploy on the Western Front that you wouldn't otherwise have. And plus, you might be able to, using the train system and things like that, mm-hmm. leverage Russian forces and send them into battle on the Western Front. Now with the von Schlieffenplan, right? It was very timetable heavy. So even having all those extra forces, the initial weeks are going to be very similar because you could only jam a certain number of troops and material to the front line at once. So, you know, you'd still have attritional warfare, but eventually the French simply wouldn't have enough manpower to 
stop the, the hordes of German troops and Russian troops that are being thrown at them. Mm. Would the Germans be able to ultimately make it to Paris? Maybe. Assuming that the UK is an ally of France, I can see a yeah. couple of things that they would do. Mm. One is they would woo the Ottomans very heavily to at the least get the permission to move troops through Ottoman territory if they can get warships into the Black Sea. But also they'll be attacking Russia from the Pacific and from Asia. These are giant world-spanning empires, so they can attack Russia on its eastern front. So there is an eastern front, but it's it's the Pacific, and that'll be interesting, because Russia will care about that, but Germany won't care about that at all. And so it's a tension that could damage their relationship. Well, you just raised two intriguing possibilities, right? The first yeah. is kind of a charge of the light brigade 2.0 so let's imagine the british are able to gain some sort of transit agreement with the ottomans then you have crimea 2.0 that's point one point two is the first world war one like battle happened before world war one mm-hmm. and that was at mukden in China. You know, the, the, the Russo-Japanese War that ended in 1905. In the scenario you just laid out with the British going to the Pacific, I think the Japanese are going to be a, a key factor. And the Russians certainly aren't going to want a repeat of that because you know, the, the Japanese kind of defeated them handedly. Right. Mm. at the Battle of Mukden and, and also the seizure of Port Arthur. So you would definitely have some sort of a struggle for Port Arthur and then potentially some push into Siberia. Not too far because logistically that's an extremely difficult possibility, but the British would certainly be able to harass and really distract the Russian Empire from that standpoint. I can absolutely see Japan unilaterally claiming Siberia as its new territory, whether or not they actually have soldiers there yeah. to keep it. It would be easy for them to just say that Siberia is theirs now, and then what's Russia going to do about it? Then it becomes sort of a, a question of who who can scrape together enough crazy explorers to go there. You focus first on Vladivostok, right? That would be a Japanese target, and the Russians would have to throw everything they could at that, mm-hmm. because that's kind of their only major Pacific port. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would be a, a, a geostrategic opportunity for both the Japanese and the British, actually. Yeah, and then China. What happens with China? Right? <laughs> Isn't like Sun Yat-sen is in charge? Oh, it was like 1912 or something? Yes. Is the Boxer Rebellion kind of that general time period? So the United States, right, had forces... Like the Manchu Regiment was one of the units that was involved there. So the United States is going to have interests in probably backing the Japanese and the British, most likely in this case. And then the Germans, too. Right? The Germans had some back a colony or two in the region as well, right? In China. But they okay. certainly had a presence there. The other thing I keep thinking about is this horrible atrocity just occurred a couple of years ago. Or like Crimea just occurred a generation ago. Are people going to be ready to do all that again. Are we still in the refractory period between wars? But obviously we did have World War One in the 1910s, so... The British were locked into this inflexible alliance system, so I imagine some sort of incident would have to 
kick it all off, right? Like the assassination by Gavrilo Princip, right? So the yeah. black hand and all that good stuff. So we need right. we need a Gavrilo Princip, but I think you had one, right? It's going to be like Skas, I don't know, some Polish name, right? Princevich, something, Princeviki. This is an interesting theory of history where you remove one person in their historical place Mm. searches for a new person to latch on to sort of the opposite of the great man theory really <laughs> the average man theory i suppose the chosen one like no no please don't choose me the unchosen one theory that's a nice story that'd be a great title <laughs> the unchosen one <laughs> your next alternate history novel the unchosen <laughs> one coming out very soon <laughs> I want to focus a little bit more. I want to focus a few years ahead now, in earnest, to the 1890s, if we can, and the dual alliance between Russia and France. Is there any way that we can nip that in the bud in 1894? I mean, this is in, an interesting time for Russia, apart from anything else. It's the transition between Alexander III and Nicholas II, and we know how the latter's regime ended up. I mean... I, is there any way of sort of nipping things in the bud a little bit before anything cements? This is a reach, but I'm going to keep coming back to Poland. The Germans maybe arrange some sort of a false flag operation with, you know, they just get some Polish partisans to attack Russian troops someplace and cause some sort of a harsher response from the Russians than is necessary and then paint it as a Russian Orthodox attack on Catholicism and just outrage the French people but again that's a reach just make it politically very difficult for them to make an alliance with the Russians would that just lead to a sort of unaligned French-Russian declaration of war anyway a few years later on on Germany at some point probably but I didn't think it was a strong way to stop it but it could be one out of like a toolbox of many different things that they could do if you had a weaker Germany because the whole point of that military convention was to mutual defense in case Germany attacked one or the other then they don't need to sign this convention how do yeah. you weaken Germany in this intervening time say from the late uh, 1880s to the early 1890s how does that happen I suppose we can't assassinate Bismarck anymore can we I guess not though we <laughs> can't assassinate him twice so perhaps Friedrich III continues to reign and he's just a terrible leader and wears away the influence of Germany until it's not worth considering anymore we got a few more scenarios to kick about and okay. I'd love like to focus i don't know how much you guys know on the splendid isolation period of the united kingdom and the british empire is there any way to keep that going and to stop any alliances forming between the uk and other countries i mean other historians such as margaret Macmillan have said it was actually anything but splendid isol isolationism because it sort of encouraged alliances against the UK such as Germany is there a way of doing that to keep the splendid isolation foreign policy going particularly between the Germans and the British with the royalty right there's a lot of interrelationships through marriage and they're all cousins and inbred and whatnot Queen Victoria so, weren't called the grandmother of Europe for nothing I suppose exactly so I would imagine the best way for the Germans to at least encourage the Brits to remain isolated is to use that channel. Like, look, we're family. It's better for us not to fight at all than for you to take a side. Why don't you just sit this one out? 
I'm guessing there's at least less of a possibility of a world war starting because Russia and France would be less eager to get involved in one. If the UK isn't getting involved and the US isn't getting involved, that will lead to some sort of German victory. Yeah, you're looking at like a pan-Germany that kind of in the distant future becomes the core under which you might have a sort of a unified Europe, even though that's kind of how it ended up anyway, mm. at least in continental Europe. You've been listening to part one of the Alternate History Show featuring me, Ben Kearns, and starring Sean Patrick Hazlitt and Daniel Benson, focusing on the history of Europe and diplomacy in Europe leading up until the First World War. We've got plenty more to come in the second part. We'll be talking about 1904 and the Russo-Japanese war in particular could that conflict have been averted altogether and what would have happened had russia won instead and how about the idea of an early world war one and how could world war one have been prevented altogether with a point of departure after june the 28th 1914 is that even possible Along with that, we'll be exploring to climates unknown, talking to prolific author Carlos Archero about his new book. That's in part two of the Alternate History Show. This is the Alternate History Show. We revisit the past, change it, and see what happens. Enough said. Focusing now on 1904-05... I'd like to touch on the Russo-Japanese War. Is there any way of preventing it, first off? I think it would be super difficult because on the one hand, you have the Russians who have this complete superiority complex. They see the Japanese as this third-rate, non-European army that they're going to crush. I think the only way out of it is through some subtle negotiation about rights on these railroads, kind of carving up China in some way, but I don't see that as possible because I don't think at the time that the Russians saw the the Japanese as their equals. And frankly, the Japanese showed them who really was superior. I really don't think it could have been prevented, but the only Mm. way to do it would have been through diplomacy. If you had some sort of enlightened Russian general, but at the time, most Russian generals were not very enlightened. I can imagine like a chance meeting of, again, like friends at college. I was going to say, because the Anglo-Japanese agreement, the treaty was in service at this point. So could that be an avenue whereby more diplomatic ties could have been manufactured so to speak there was a treaty i don't know i don't know exactly when it was enacted it might actually have been after this time it was between the brits the japanese and somebody else it was based on the ratios of naval vessels that was after world war one actually wasn't it the washington naval yeah yeah so it's it's probably so it's too late for that but Mm. Imagine something like that a little bit beforehand. But again, I don't think people saw the potential of Japan at that point until Moncton. It was the first real use of some of the weapons and tactics that you were going to see in the First World War. Mm. So this is an extreme wild card. But maybe there's a skirmish before that battle that is so horrific and so devastating that some international movement, peace movement, puts the brakes on that war 
maybe instead of sending troops across Siberia to fight the Japanese, maybe the, the Tsar has better foresight and realizes that his military is not all it's cooked up to be mm-hmm. and decides to cry uncle before anything really starts yeah. in order to really professionalize their military. It would be interesting to create a person like Bismarck in Russia. Uh, yes. To have like a very smart person in charge with power. It's not Nicholas II making this decision, mm. but he doesn't seem like the kind of person who would share power easily, so it would have yeah. to be someone really spectacular. And it would have to be someone who could influence the Tsar and make it look like it was his decision, if that makes sense. Rasputin! Well, what if you take out Rasputin? What if you remove him from the picture? What happens? But then again, I think he wasn't properly introduced to the Russian imperial family until, I think, 1907, 1908, I think. That was the time when he was officially... What if he was introduced earlier? You'd have to not only not be crazy, but also be a military genius. We're putting a lot of pressure on this guy. (laughs) He would certainly not be the crafty... A Russian person who would have better success. It's more like, how can we remove him? And again, as you said, it's, you know, he doesn't come into the picture until a little yeah. bit Afterwards. later. He had some kind of illness. I want to say syphilis, but maybe I'm wrong. It's probably syphilis, but syphilis. You know, who, who knows? So he abandoned his family, and then he showed up later as this sort of wandering mystic. Yes. And so we could just kill him then. Conversely, what would have happened had Russia actually managed to win the Russo-Japanese War. Yeah. How could that have happened, and what would the consequences be? I guess that was more what I was thinking of. They fought the war very badly, because, as Sean said, they underestimated Japan. So they really might have been able to win. And in that case, it would have humiliated the Empire of Japan. They might not have overextended so much in the early 20th century. It would also have given more oomph behind European colonialism rather than Japanese colonialism. Yeah, maybe China would have been stronger. Right, because Russia probably wouldn't have then gone on to expand into China. Mm. They had as much land as they could deal with. They would have just knocked Japan back, and China would have had uh, an easier time of it. Stronger China, stronger Russia, weaker Japan, but not totally destroyed. Maybe they would negotiate with Russia Mm. so that they still have... Korea as their sphere of influence, and generally sort of a less unstable situation in Asia in general. Moving on a little bit, is there any chance that World War One could have started, say, earlier on in the 1910s, say 1910, 1911, possibly over the Agadir crisis, Morocco, and all that went with it? There were the Balkan Wars. In real history, it seems to me like the great powers wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. They were very worried, they were very cautious for precisely this reason. They didn't want to start a world war. And so they were happy to let the Balkan countries fight with each other. I suppose that would have taken longer, though. Well, there was the Italo-Turkish War. If someone had been more closely allied with Italy, that could have dragged them into a war, too. I'm presuming at that point you may have either got Italy and Germany and assorted allies against Turkey and Russia primarily and France and the UK. I guess it depends on who would want to save the Ottoman Empire. Mm. And at some point, they might just decide to hell with the Ottoman Empire. We've been propping them up in the last hundred years. Maybe if we join in the fun, we can grab a slice of that pie before the dust settles. That's actually a great 
scenario, mm. right? Like maybe, maybe World War One breaks out in the Middle East. There's some kind of squabble over the remains of the Ottoman Empire. I know for a fact that the UK had spies in Bulgaria during the Russo-Turkish War working with the Ottomans. There was this guy who's I think his name was Valentine. They were sort of behind the scenes support because they were afraid that if Russia won the Russo-Turkish War, they would suddenly have a border between the Russian Empire and the British Empire in the Middle East. And so that's precisely where a world war might break out. How would that differ to the world war that we know in real life in 1914? Do we think? If it's not in Europe... That's interesting. It's all sort of a proxy war. It's a bit more like late 20th century yeah. feeling, with different empires pumping resources into their puppets in the Middle East and Asia. Or maybe it's a proxy to the Seven Years' War, which is kind of almost properly a world war back then as well, mm. where you have, you know, at some point, when all these squabbles or these pitched battles are breaking out, in different colonies, I think at some point you're going to have some powder keg in Europe that'll start the whole process again, mm. right? Where there's some outrage in Tangier that causes the Germans to initiate the Finschlieffen plan. Yes. Right? And then you have the same thing all over again. Moving ahead to World War One, is there any way of preventing World War One as we know it? with a point of departure after June the 28th, 1914? It depends. Okay. So I think that the point of no return is when the Germans started sending troops on trains. Like when the trains started moving, Yeah. that's the point at which nobody could have stopped anything, no matter what you do. It would have to be last-minute diplomacy or sabotage on a level that is unprecedented in the history of the world and by sabotage I mean like blowing up all the rail between Russia and France which would be hard enough to do now even back then it would have been impossible you'd have to have a, like a massive sabotage effort to be able to do that so I think last minute diplomacy where kind of the loneliest voice in the room kind of just says guys what are we doing we're just going to blindly start war based on these treaties let's at least have a last diplomatic effort mm. to avert something that's insane and you do get the feeling that if a diplomatic solution had got going then it could have like the momentum leading up to the war that in itself could have gained a momentum of its own if that makes sense you know if i were to kind of probability weight it you're talking about like a one percent mm. chance to do it but that chance would increase if you were able to avert a war for some period of time, right? So just by talking, you might be able to buy yourself a few days, maybe weeks. Now, if you were able to keep talking until kind of the November time frame when it starts to get cold in Europe, yes, you might be able to avert it for a full year. But I think these issues are going to keep coming time. You're kind of just bending the event arc of time, but you're not bending it in the opposite direction. You're just bending it outward. You can have momentum, but there's also uphill and downhill. And in this case, mm -hmm. it's war. There are lots of ways to get there. Maybe if Austro-Hungary throws 
Yugoslavia under the bus and says, this is all the Serbian nationalists' fault. Let's invade them. But then if you did that, you would get Russia involved anyway. I can't see any way out of this one. Maybe Russia, kind of like they did in Serbia in the 1990s, disingenuously says, oh, we will go in and root out these people for you. Maybe that might have averted it for a little bit, but once they figured out that the Russians didn't have the same interests, that would have, again, just pushed out the event but not stopped it. That might have worked a little bit because if Russia did it, it would be to hollow out the Yugoslav government and replace it with their people. And in real history, France and England didn't want that because they didn't want a unified Slavic thing. Yes. Uh, ah. Taking up so much space. But now, in, in 1914, they might say, well, this is a price we're willing to pay to get a in the way of war. Germany. Yeah. yeah, so if you had that Russian genius that we talked about who's not Rasputin, that would have been an underhanded, even better than I thought, right? Like, oh, we'll take care of this problem for you. We don't like these people either. Right. And follow them out and gain more influence. Yeah, that's brilliant. Oh, that Russian genius. Oh, he should have been around. He really should. In the altered history, we often think about, like, what would happen if a famous person didn't exist? Yes. But... It's just as likely that our real history lost some potential geniuses. Mm. What if they had existed? So it would be cool if like some kid in St. Petersburg didn't die of tuberculosis yes. and ends up being a very influential person. Funny you have this. I'm going to go in conspiracy theory land for a second, but it's relevant, oh. I promise. Okay. So are you both familiar with Whitley Strieber, the communion guy? The guy who wrote the book Communion? He said he was abducted by aliens, right? Yeah, so just bear with me for a second because that, that part's not relevant. But he has a book called Master of the Key where he had some other experience where some guy called Master of the Key came into his hotel room and kind of weaved this whole story. And one of the things that he said was during the Holocaust that we lost a once-in-a-2,000-year event because the Nazis had killed the mother and father of someone who was mm -hmm. meant to create anti-gravity. <laughs> so, again, I'm not saying that's true or false or whatever. I'm just saying, as far as alternate history goes, things like that could potentially have happened in the past. Mm -hmm. right? mm, yeah. Yeah. So maybe the point of divergence is some terrible massacre or a plague that killed someone who would have gone on to be the Bismarck of Russia. Maybe you had the equine flu, right? Yes. That hit in... 1980, yeah, 1990, yeah, actually. Yeah, I think maybe it, was. it came earlier and you lost 30 million people. Now, it probably wouldn't have been as bad because you wouldn't have had it spread as far and wide because technology would have been a little bit earlier. Yeah. Uh, you didn't have all these massive troop movements across continents that would help spread it. Mm -hmm. But maybe it breaks out a little bit earlier and takes out and reduces the number of troops you actually have to wage war. Many thanks for joining us, guys. Going to have to wrap this up. Uh, I do hope that uh, you can pop back at some point and, uh, say, contribute to the show in the future, both of you. Uh, say, thank you very much. It's been brilliant to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Uh yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Any books that you'd like to promote? Have you released any novels, any stories that you'd like anyone to know about before we head off? For listeners to this podcast, you'll be interested in my alternate history. The most recent story is in the Tales from Alternate Earths anthology from Inklings. It's Tales from Alternate Earths 3, and the story there is Levski's Boots. 
about the Bulgarian revolutionary Vasil Levski, and it talks exactly about this time leading up to World War One. Please do check out Weird World War Three. It is an anthology that looks at the question: What if the United States and Soviet Union? had gotten into a conventional World War III, and it is an anthology of various short story writers, so it actually has one of Mike Resnick's last stories before he passed on. David Drake's got a story in there, Mm. uh, a number of other science fiction and alternate history authors, and it's also strangely prophetic because it came out in 2020 and Putin invaded Ukraine in 2022. It's not exactly the same, but there are eerie parallels. So definitely check that. Also, check out my podcast where I interview lots of authors. I also interview a lot of military experts and also paranormal experts, particularly with the U.S. military's remote viewing program, which is essentially their side program from the 1970s to 1990s, Stargate, etc. That is called Through a Glass Darkly with Sean on YouTube, and you can find it on YouTube. You can also find it on Anchor and Spotify. It's history with a twist. You're listening to the Alternate History Show with Ben Kearns. And welcome to another Feedback Hub. And on this part of the show, I'm joined by another very special guest. His new book out, To Climb It's Unknown, has been called one of the best alternate history books to read in a very long time. And it's out now. Carlos Arturo. First off, before we talk about the book in detail, I'd like you to tell us how you got into alternate history. How did your sort of love affair almost with alternate history come about? Initially, I was a heavy fan of science fiction in general. For a long time, I had a very wide diet of science fiction. Yeah. Until, totally by accident, I stumbled upon The Years of Rise and Salt by Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh And that hooked me into the subgenre and I began researching more and more. That, mm. that was the entry point. I'm guessing you were somewhat into history before that as well. Yes, I am also a fan of historical novels. So how did you think, oh, do you know what, I could start writing alternate history? Well, I already considered myself a writer Okay. before I heard of the genre his, uh, alternate history. Around the age of 12, is when I think happened, I was a big fan of Jules Verne until I read Journey to the Center of the Earth, which I disliked intensely. I disliked it so much that I thought, this is so bad, even I could write something better. (laughs) And that sparked the explosive thought, hey, what do you mean I can write? Since then I have been trying my hand at, at, at all sorts of stories. Obviously at the age of 12, nothing was very presentable, but I had already accumulated some modest experience in writing before I encountered the genre of alternate history. Mm. And after I had researched more about this genre, it occurred to me that this was a very fertile, a very valuable terrain to explore. Is this your first alternate history novel, your first time actually exploring alternate history generally as an author? Oh, wow. Okay, so it's called To Climb It's Unknown. I have to say it's a very good good novel I've been reading over the past few weeks or so. Tell us about the premise. To Climb It's Unknown 
is based on the idea that British colonization was a failure and therefore in that timeline the United States was never founded. Mm. And what the novel tells is the four centuries of history that happened between the moment when the United States fails to get founded yes. and the present day. The world is divided yeah. in rival empires because there is no single emerging superpower to dominate global geopolitics. The political ideals that the United States espoused at the moment of its foundation... Yeah, the American dream and all that lot, yes. ...that is not present in this timeline. Mm. So we have, in many ways, a still pre-modern Europe that still has not experienced either the scientific revolution or the uh, liberal revolutions of the 1900s or even the French Revolution. It is still very much a colonialist, imperialist system in the 21st century. I did get the feeling of that, particularly at the beginning. I like what you did as well with quite a small departure point, one that you wouldn't necessarily think of. Tell us about where you started it. Where did you start? I think it was 1581, wasn't it? Yes, it was a somewhat convoluted process. At first, I only knew that I wanted to change the fate of this ship, the Mayflower, because the Mayflower yeah. is the mythical origin story of the oh, United yes. States. Yeah. And to get an idea of what sort of world I would be writing about, I looked up what else was happening in the world at the same time as the Mayflower was traveling, and I found several fascinating incidents. Around that short period, those short weeks, between mm. September and October of 1620. It also happened to be the moment of the assassination of the Chinese emperor yeah. by poisoning, and that moment weakened the Ming dynasty, and a few generations down the line, the Ming dynasty falls. At the same time, it, uh, in those weeks of September, October 1620, we have the return of Danish explorer, Jens Munk, who mm. had just failed to find the Arctic route between Canada and Russia. It would take some more centuries to find that route through the Arctic. At the same time, a Japanese ambassador, Hasekura Tsunenaga, was returning to Japan from Spain. And at the same time, a Dutch pirate who converted to Islam and, and traveled to the Republic of Saleh was captured and killed. If I remember correctly, it was a joint operation by British and Dutch navies. So all these events, are happening at the same time and in a moment of excessive ambition I told myself well I'm going to change one event why don't I change all of those events the next step was to look for what possible incident before those events could have had uh, cascading repercussions on all of them and I had the good fortune of finding the story of the English sailor William Adams, yes, who happens to be the first Englishman to send to set foot in Japan. He also ran commercial routes between England and what is now Morocco. So I saw an opportunity to make all the pieces of the puzzle fall in place because his life 
has consequences over all the places that I was planning to, to affect. I like the sort of pessimism. That's not too much of a contradiction. I, I like the sort of pessimism you got going in the... Um, and the contradiction with the sort of, of American dream era. When I try to conceive of what the world would look like without the United States... Yes. I made a conscious effort to not imply that the United States is like a blessing for the world, like it would be a big tragedy to lose it. That would have been a sort of hagiography, and I didn't want to do hagiography. Yes. But at the same time, I didn't want to fall into the other extreme of showing a shining, bright utopia. <laughs> yeah. Because that would imply that the United States is a curse on the world, and that is not the point of this exercise. The point of doing the novel, to me, was to show the good things and the problematic things that the United States has brought to the world, especially to counter a narrative that emerged during the Bush Jr. government, this narrative of the indispensable nation. That is the, the main driver of the political stance of the book, the idea that there is no such, a, such thing as an indispensable nation. And even if some of the political ideals that inspire the United States are worthy ideals, lofty ideals. The Americans don't have a monopoly on those ideals. Yes. At some point, someone else could have found the same conclusions and founded a different country on those same ideals. Mm. Even if it could have taken some, lo some time longer to achieve it. With that in mind, tell us one sort of good development or favourable development in your opinion and one not so favourable development compared to what we would call real life about the world into climates unknown? Well, in the timeline that I invent for this book there is never a unipolar moment. Mm. There is never a single political superpower that dominates the global agenda. So the type of cultural influence and cultural exchange that is possible in this world is more open, more varied. Even during the centuries that I narrate life under several empires, it is never just one single empire. So mm. There is never one hegemonic way of seeing the world. On the other hand, this is a world where the scientific revolution happened much later. This is a world where decolonization happened much, much later. When I was thinking of the repercussions of removing the simple historical fact of the foundation of the country, I realized that that was not enough. It was not simply enough to remove the foundation of the United States because the political theory that gave birth to the United States was already there. Yes. Before the country was founded. So to do this experiment completely, I need to remove not only the fact of America, but the idea of America. Yes. So that's why I needed to go a bit farther back in the past to find the point of divergence, to not only remove the arrival of the Mayflower at America, but also to remove the British liberal political thought that inspired the political traditions of the United States. In order to remove that in a way that didn't require adding a second point of divergence, I ended up involving René Descartes in the story. I managed to find a chain of consequences that flows from the initial death of William Adams in his adolescence 
yes. to the life of René Descartes. What I do is I kill René Descartes before he published the foundational works of modern philosophy. And without modern philosophy, the development of political theory does not take the direction it took in our world. We, you don't have the modern concept of division of powers, of human rights, of liberalism. And I needed to do that drastic change to remove the entire idea of America. If I didn't do that, I risk falling into another cliche. Because if I remove the simply the foundation of the United States that left the board open for some other player to make the move, for someone else in some other location to use the British liberal political theory yes. and found something like the United States, and it would have been too easy to misinterpret that as saying that if America didn't exist, someone would have to invent it. I wanted to avoid the risk of that misinterpretation, which is why I took the drastic step of removing the entire political tradition that inspired the United States. And how's it gone down? How's the uh, general feedback of the novel been? How's it been received in your view? It has mostly been enthusiastic. People have received it very well. I do have to note a couple negative reviews that I saw, which have remained in my mind because they reveal a certain conception of history and of literature. I remember in particular one reader who complained that the events in my novel did not feel like they flowed necessarily from the change, like yeah. they didn't seem inevitable, they seemed very dubious, very contingent. And that got me thinking, because what else would you expect from history? History is not inevitable, history is always contingent. Why would it surprise you that a historical series of events is sometimes contradictory, sometimes unexpected, sometimes shocking. That is the flow of human events. And th that shows to me that some readers of alternate history have this mindset, probably influenced by the tradition of war games, that is one of the big precursors of alternate history. In war games, you are trying to assume that if you make this decision, necessarily this consequence follows, and then necessarily this consequence follows, but that is not how history works. Yes. Carlos, many thanks for joining us this afternoon. I want to know what you're up to in the future. Uh, you've done one alternate history novel. Have you got the taste for a follow-up at some point? And uh, what's it likely to be? Currently, I am doing a novel for my creative writing degree. It is a retelling of a Colombian folk monster story. And that is what I will be busy with for at least the next year. Okay, so you're going to be concentrating on that as well as just uh, generally uh, enjoying the fruits of your labour regarding To Climates Unknown, which is out now. What's the best way of people getting hold of it, basically? Tell us. To Climates Unknown is available in paperback and hardcover on Amazon. It is also available as an ebook on Amazon Kindle, as an ebook on Barnes & Noble, as an ebook in Kobo as an ebook in Apple Books. The only one that does not have it is Google Books, but all the other major places have it. All the others have it, so go there and uh, check it out. Carlos, before we go, I'm going to give you a few seconds. I'm going to give you a little bit of time to say anything else you want to about To Climb It's Unknown, anything that might persuade people to get hold of the book for a Christmas treat for themselves or anyone else. Please go ahead now. One of the big points that I make toward the end of the novel is the 
folly of war, the folly of trying to steer the course of history via the course of wars, and the need to find some different way, some non-violent way, to decide the course of history and to manage human affairs. Nicely put, Carlos. Many thanks for joining us today. Best of luck with uh, what you got going on in the future. Best of luck with that degree as well. I hope you can pop back at some point and uh, maybe contribute to one of our alternate history show discussions. I would be happy to do that. And those fine words wrap up another edition of the alternate history show. Many thanks for listening over the past uh, what, hour or so and over the past year. I wish you the best for 2023 and a happy winter season or Christmas or whatever you want to call it basically. Whatever you're doing with your time. Hope it goes well. David Flynn is a prolific AH author and publisher and he'll be joining me for a very special Feedback Hub episode of this show in January next year. We'll be talking about how he got in to alternate history in the first place. And in February, David returns for another full episode of the alternate history show when we'll be talking 1066 and all that because you can't get much more romantic than a candlelight dinner with an alternate history show about the battle of Stamford bridge and the battle of hastings so that'll be a pre-valentine present for you to look forward to join me and david flynn for that and do stay in touch won't you Sea Lion Press. They're available on the Alternate History discussion forums on Facebook and on alternatehistory.com. I hope you can stay in touch either way. In the meantime, many thanks for listening. As I was saying earlier, we'll return next year.